Hi, it's Mark Raven here. If you like my podcast, you might be interested in my books. Uh, my first book, Lean Hospitals. My second book, Healthcare Kaizen, co-authored with Joe Schwartz. Practicing Lean, an anthology of stories from a number of authors. And my most recent book, Measures of Success. To learn more and to buy through Amazon, you can uh, support this podcast by going to leanblog.org slash Amazon. Hi, this is Mark Rabin. I'm really honored that the 32nd Annual Shingo Conference has invited me to teach a half-day workshop on topics from my most recent book, Measures of Success, React Less, Lead Better, Improve More. The conference is April 16th and 17th in Orlando. My workshop will be Friday morning the 17th. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to leanblog.org slash Shingo 2020. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. You are listening to episode 86 of the podcast for March 23rd, 2010. My guest today is David Lawrence Sundahl. He is Managing Director of Rule 4 Consulting. They're a firm that works with healthcare providers uh, and organizations to drive improvements using lean and what they call adaptive design methodologies. He was a contemporary uh, Steven Spear at the Harvard Business School and also worked with Dr. John Kanegi, author of the book Designed to Adapt, Leading Healthcare in Challenging Times. Uh, as always, I want to thank you for taking time to listen, and I'd invite you also to check out previous episodes at leanpodcast.org. Check out my blog at leanblog.org, and you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash leanblog. Well, David Sundahl, I want to thank you for taking time out and joining us today on the Lean Blog Podcast. My pleasure. So, uh, as we normally do, I guess we would just ask you to start, um, introduce yourself for the listeners, um, and I know you've got a, a particularly unique background, I think, for people that are doing uh, work in this arena, so if you can talk about how... Uh, your career has progressed and how you got to be doing this type of work. I think that would be great to hear about, too. Good. Um, I have sort of a standard joke that, um, you know, I did my Ph.D. in early Chinese history and archaeology at Harvard. The natural next step, of course, is to become visiting scholar at the Harvard Business School, and then naturally that leads to healthcare. <laughs> so... Um, that's a sort of joking way to explain what I've done. Um, there are some common threads, and one of the most important features that, or one of the most important threads that runs through all of this is actually how do you do good science, whether that's um, as a historian or archaeologist, whether you're uh, an academic at a business school, or whether you work in a hospital or a manufacturing plant, mm -hmm. or you're a manager in one of these places, how do you do um, rigorous research, not in the high-end, big, big, you know, data set ways, but how do you do lots and lots of small um, scientific experiments? This was, when I was at HBS, this was the stuff that Steven Spear, who uh, probably everybody many people know of. Um, he was coming back and uh, reporting on what he was learning, and really through all this, what became clear in his studies of Toyota is that 
everybody was doing small scientific experiments everywhere from the uh, maintenance guys to the plant manager to the uh, to the regional vice presidents and presidents, people were designing work in as a way to test a hypothesis and then to improve. So that got me really excited. And at the time I was there, uh, a mid-career surgeon, vascular surgeon named John Kanegi was also visiting at the business school. And um, John persuaded Toyota to do a couple of pilot programs at hospitals because, as we talked about this, I mean, his real his real recognition or realization was that um, the things that Steve Spear was describing when he reported on what he was learning really weren't about making cars. Uh, he was discovering how to manage or how an organization has very successfully managed complex dynamic work. And nothing, I have to say, in given my experience now, nothing is, compares to healthcare in terms of complexity and in terms of change. Right. So, um, so we did this for a while. John Kanegi and I did, and we... Uh, um, under uh, the, under the, we were Canadian associates for some time. Maybe that's the way to say it. And then John, um, John has gone to focus. He wrote a book on adapt on what he call what we've come to call adaptive design, and we've really focused on the teaching, training, consulting stuff, while he he focuses on writing and evangelizing because he's such a good public speaker and he's a doc and he gets excited. Um, <clears throat> as we had our firm created out of one firm, these two sister firms, we called ourselves Rule 4 Consulting. We take this, we've stolen Rule 4 shamelessly from Steve Spears' uh Rules in use from the Decoding the DNA DNA of the Toyota Production System article from the Harvard Business Review. And the fourth rule is that every improvement is done uh, at the lowest possible level in the organization using the scientific method under the guidance of a teacher. So there are two features that... There are three features of it, but two that are really exciting to us for a lot of reasons that you might imagine. The first it, uh, for me is every improvement is done using the scientific method. And um, we see ourselves as being the first wave of teachers for an organization so that they can begin to um, really absorb and adopt the tools and practices and the mindset that will help them to be successful. Okay. And, and, and so Rule 4 Consulting is doing that work exclusively within healthcare, correct? Yes. That, we only do healthcare. And so tell us, you know, you talk about the scientific method, um, and how can you describe how you might get help get an organization and their staff members started in terms of, uh, what you're teaching them, what early actions that you have people take to 
learn how to do these experiments and, and to make improvements. And maybe talk about how you know uh, adaptive design uh, may differ either in philosophy or in the approach of um, how people go about that. How, how yeah. it differs from you know, typical lean, if you will. Sure. I, um, we use, what I'd say is we use a lot of the same tools uh, that lean does. We are, on the other hand, we're a bit tool agnostic, so we're happy to have tools from any methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I'll just have to confess, I'm not a great process engineer. In fact, there are many, 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 many people who are much better than I am. And that's because our focus with um, with our clients and other partners is we're really trying to get them to, to start to operationalize these ideas every day. So uh, we talk about the ideal ideal patient care, we, uh, we have a definition for it. Our clients will customize this somewhat, but it essentially amounts to, you know, each patient gets exactly what they need, when and where they need it, in a perfectly safe environment where, uh, that's free from waste. And um, so that, that sort of defining ideal is the, is the kind of starting point. And then we... Um, we sort of teach this in two ways. One is just really practical with nurses and techs on the floor. We teach them to observe, and then we uh, serve early on as basically, we could say, problem solvers. We teach them to identify problems and then to participate in problem solving and to set up new, and I shouldn't say new processes, because in many cases they don't have any process. To establish a process that they can test against the real world. Without a, This is one of the wonderful things that the folks who really gave life to Six Sigma realized is that if you have a ton of underlying vari- uh, vari- variability, it's really hard to know whether what you do ha- is causing the effects you see or if it's just accidental. So on the unit, we try to help people make really small changes but be really rigorous about them so that they can learn from them whether they come out as expected or not. So they're in designing that change, they're, they're stating a hypothesis and testing to see if they get the results that they would have expected? That's right. Okay. And we, the, we think about the scientific method as you have a hypothesis, you test it against the real world, and if it comes out right, then you, you have corroborated but not confirmed your hypothesis. Because eventually you'll come to a point where you'll reckon something, some anomaly will happen or you'll see another opportunity. And that's great because that enables you to build a better theory, a better hypothesis about the world. We learn something. And so we just try to get them uh, identifying where things are preventing them getting patients what they need building a system and having that system every time well having having that system be tested every time it's used mm-hmm. so uh, I can give you an example of this um, to kind of as a kind of comparison for how things go in a hospital typically sitting on a unit they're doing 
the nurses are identifying and the, and the unit clerk identifying problems. This this is now several years ago, one of the early early experiences we had. And a nurse said, "I okay, you wanted problems? I have a problem. This patient had a DNR order, uh, and I just now discovered it as I'm going to discharge him. So he was being discharged, so there was not much we could do for him then, but we wanted to figure out how to create a better system. We pulled the hospital system's policy on do not resuscitate orders. Mm -hmm. It was 11 pages long. And really, there were only four things that mattered, four little things that mattered in all those 11 pages. Um, they, and they were simply, you needed to have a red wristband on the patient. You needed to have red tape on their chart, red tape on the, on the grease board. And then if they had a telemonitor, you need to have red tape on that. But, and not to sidetrack your story, but that reminds me a lot of the points Dr. Gwande makes in his book, The Checklist Manifesto, that good checklists yeah. are short and to the point. And, and really have the key things that are, are important to make sure you don't forget. Right. That's exactly right. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear the nurses talk about it because one of them had been on the DNR task force for 10 years. One of them had resuscitated a patient in the 80s and almost quit. So it, this was near and dear to their heart. So what did we do? We actually sat down for, it was 20 minutes. We did, a, you know, I, I did some legwork because I was there just starting that whole process for them got a few things together and they designed a great process that worked perfectly for the I was with them for another six weeks it worked perfectly uh, eight eight more times and you know it doesn't matter the process itself is not so important what's important is in just about 30 minutes they were able to solve a problem that the hospital system had been struggling with since its inception wow and um and it's interesting, as we went to share this around, other places said, oh, no, we don't have any problem with this because we do it this way. So we're happy about that. We're not trying to force anybody to fix something that isn't broken. Um, but other places were delighted to hear that somebody had some way to do this, and they had to modify it to make sure it fit with their circumstances. But uh, they, these nurses and that unit clerk made a huge difference mm -hmm. for a lot of patients. That, that's so, great. Yeah, I mean, that, that's great to hear. I mean, I, I know from my experience that um, that teaching staff members, frontline staff, uh, some of these tools leads to some amazing insights. Um, I'm curious to hear more. You talk about teaching the staff to observe work. Um, that you know, how how you go about that, or what are some? I mean, you, you've already talked a little bit about some of the surprising things that they see. Um, but I'm curious a little bit more of that that process or what, what kind of structure goes around that observation rather than just saying, well, you know, just, you know, go out there for an yeah. hour. Or, you know, there's more structure to it than that, right? Yeah. We usually start people out with the same observation, which is a minute-by-minute -minute observation of the activities of an individual so that they just get um, – they really are forced to see things happen rather than to report what they think would happen. That's why we start with activities, because um, lots of people can tell you what, well, this is the process for getting somebody into surgery. And when they tell you the process, they're missing a lot of steps, or they're adding things that they think should happen but mm -hmm. don't really happen. Right. 
Um, and so we take people just to do an hour-long observation, then we do a summary of that observation, and, and we show it to the person who we've observed to let them know, you know, say thanks and say, did we really get it right? And this is principally to just get them to be comfortable um, observing rather than assuming. Mm-hmm. So we do this first with the folks who are going to be the, the support for the frontline folks, and then as they begin to create slack in the system because they're eliminating all sorts of hassle stuff, mm-hmm. then, you know, regular line, frontline nurses or nurse educators, somebody will bec- these folks will start to learn to become kind of team leaders for the, for the next group uh, or for the group that's already there. Um, so... Yeah, it's funny you mentioned, um, you know, this gap between, you know, there's a difference between observing and assuming because, you know, I've seen there's often a big gap. And, you know, usually to me a, a big red flag is the word should when people yeah. say, well, we should do such and such. Well, let's go and confirm and observe and see, <laughs> you know, not to be too Yoda-like, but say, well, there is no should. You either do or you, you don't do. Let's. That's right. <laughs> it either, yeah, that. This is one, it's really, this is a big thing in healthcare because everybody is so worried about doing the right thing that it often is difficult for them to give up um, <clears throat> the, the kind of normative stance, right? So this is the way it should be, it should be, it should be. Uh, you know, I, I, what I always tell them is, I think that the sun should rise in the south, south instead of the north, but it doesn't. So I'm just going to work around its schedule, and uh, I'll be happier and more successful if I accept what there is. Now, that obviously isn't – if you go too far that way, we're just giving in to things that can be improved. Mm -hmm. But uh, at least we we have learned the hard way, I think, over the years that you – there's just no way – you can be successful if you don't meet people where they are. If you don't meet them where they are, if you don't accept the way things are, um, then you then you just don't get anywhere. Sure. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying, understanding an accurate current state doesn't mean you accept it always has to be that way. Yeah, right. that's a, so that's a much, you've said it much better than I have. You're right, yes. Okay. But without that under, correct understanding... Um, you're just sure to get yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to touch on before we wrap up, and, and maybe along the lines of uh, people getting into trouble, I mean, I, I'm curious, situations where you're teaching staff to see waste and see problems and to identify problems, uh, a lot of organizations and cultures don't exactly reward uh, that simple act of identifying a problem. And so right. can you talk about some of the things that you maybe work with with managers or senior leadership on um, to create an environment where, where that approach can actually um, not lead to bad reactions? Yeah, this is a case where the principle of, um, um, of ba- you know, sort of batch size of one, one piece flow, or sort of customization one by one is really important, we've learned. We We've tried a number of interventions to create, to increase psychological safety in a broad sense in organizations. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that people 
again, are built somewhat differently. And over, you know, over the decade we've been doing this, what we've really learned is that some people will actually, they'll, they can make this, they can just make this turn really easily and some people can't. And what we have to do is go diagnose the, the barriers they're having. Because actually, uh, people do, th- they get it cognitively. It's emotionally, mm-hmm. they have a hard time with the idea of welcoming problems. Right. And so, in a way, it, we just structure activities um, that allow them to demonstrate to the people that they work with especially that they value problems. Now, that might be setting up some kind of ritual where if you've identified five problems, you get you know some treat, or it might be the first time an attempted improvement fails, mm-hmm. the uh, we try to have a leader come to the unit to celebrate the failure of our of our hard work. Um, it sounds crazy, but sometimes that's all it takes for them. They just need a ritual to be able. You know, they need standard work for um, celebrating mm-hmm. problems being raised and. Uh, failures, even of our best attempts at making a better process, being accepted and welcomed as an opportunity to improve. Well, I appreciate you um, sharing some of those uh, ideas and, and some of the approach with uh, with me and with the listeners today. Um, I want to thank you again, David Sundahl from Rule 4 Consulting, uh, for taking some time out. Could, could you mention a uh, web address or other ways that people can learn more about yeah. your firm and the work you're doing? So we'd love to have you come to our website. Uh, it is just www.rule4, so rule the numeral four, consulting.com. And you can kind of read some case studies. We have a blog that I don't, uh, that I don't do a great job with, but I keep, you know, putting things in here and putting things in there. And I got now another author who's helping me out and he's more reliable. So, because we get lots of good stories. So, uh, and we'd love feedback on what we misunderstand or get wrong. So, well, good. I, I hope listeners and, and people will go check that out and uh, and, and learn more. Um, I want to thank you again, David, for taking the time off to join us today. It's been great having you. Thanks to you, Mark. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com. Hi, it's Mark Raven here. If you like my podcast, you might be interested in my books. Uh, My first book, Lean Hospitals. My second book, Healthcare Kaizen, co-authored with Joe Schwartz. Practicing Lean, an anthology of stories from a number of authors, and my most recent book, Measures of Success. To learn more and to buy through Amazon, you can support this podcast by going to leanblog.org slash Amazon. Hi, this is Mark Rabin. I'm really honored that the 32nd Annual Shingo Conference has invited me to teach a half-day workshop on topics from my most recent book, Measures of Success. React less, lead better, improve more. 
The conference is April 16th and 17th in Orlando. My workshop will be Friday morning the 17th. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to leanblog.org slash shingo2020.